Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. So I'm a student of history. And I realized that people had done really hard things to give me the opportunities that I had as a white woman growing up in the 1950s, even though they were limited and continue to be limited for women, okay? But I realized that people had suffered a lot for other groups as well. This was not going to be something that just changed overnight. That's Brenda Berkman, who served in the fire department of the city of New York for 25 years. As a 29-year-old, she was the only named plaintiff in the historic class action lawsuit that forced the city to allow women into the FDNY for the first time. Brenda Berkman tells me a story of justice and personal perseverance, how she went from being a student at the NYU School of Law to becoming one of the first 40 women firefighters in the city's history. She also talks about how, after the first plane hit the World Trade Center on the morning of September 11th, she rushed to the nearest firehouse and joined the ranks of New York's heroic first responders. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. There are a lot of daily news podcasts out there, but none of them are anything like Today Explained from Vox. Every day, hosts Sean Ramaswaram and team pick an essential news story that defines our moment. What makes the show stand out is how they tell that story. Listening to Today Explained is kind of like calling up your smart, really connected friend to help you process the big story at the end of the day. It's all killer, no filler. You'll laugh, you'll cry, your head will spin, but you'll walk away with a real understanding of what's going on. Tomorrow, Vox's Ezra Klein joins Sean to debrief on the third Democratic debate. This is an episode you won't want to miss, so subscribe to Today Explained for free right now to get this episode automatically and understand the news every damn day. Hi, Preet, Jody in Denver. I just read an article out of the Times about the uh, informant, longtime informant that they extracted out of Russia, somewhere safe here in the U.S., I assume. Is anybody else concerned or is it just me that Trump would actually give the location of this informant that's helped us all these years? What do you think? Love your show. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Jody in Denver, for that great question, which is on a lot of people's minds. Um, by the way, since you're in Denver, you should think about coming to the live show on October 24th with Shannon Watts. We've gotten a lot of questions on some of the craziness happening with respect to national security over the last number of days. Instead of answering those questions myself, I'm going to do one better. 
And I have invited into the studio my dear friend and stay tuned regular, Lisa Monaco, who served in the Obama White House, as you may recall, as assistant to the president for Homeland Security and counterterrorism. So I'm going to let Lisa answer some of these difficult questions that people have been asking and that I've been asking myself. Lisa, thanks for being my lifeline. Great to be here, Pre. <laughs> uh, last minute, we called you and said, come on in yep. and educate us on some of these things and help us understand how bonkers they are, or maybe they're not. So with respect to Jody's question, all this reporting about the exfiltration, which is the term, of an American asset in Russia because of concerns about that asset safety because, in part, of a worry that the president might not keep that thing a secret. What do you make of all that? Well, first, I should say, I'm just reading the same public reports that you are and that Jody is. She's right to be concerned because if there is or was such an asset, meaning somebody who was working on behalf of the United States government to share secrets and to help the United States national security, that would be a really, really important thing for the U.S. government to have for our national security. And the reports that we're reading today and yesterday frankly, are really concerning to me that we're even reading about them. Because, look, the press is doing their job and they should be doing that. But at some point in time, somebody who was, it seems, trusted with U.S. national security secrets decided to disclose those. And that's a problem. But the concerns expressed by Jody and others that I've read are spot on because this person, if they exist and if this reporting is believed to be true, and again, I'm not confirming or denying any of it. But do you find it credible? Well, two things are true, Preet. One is the CIA put out a statement denying it, but the reports that I've read are sourcing to multiple current officials, meaning currently serving Trump administration officials, directly involved, I think is the words that were used, in these discussions and planning for this supposed extraction. So you weigh those two things, and it's a report that ought to be looked at very carefully. Is this something that is worthy of congressional investigation? I think so, on a few different levels, right? A, if this is true, this means that somebody who was in a position of trust disclosed information that was classified. And if the other parts of the reporting are true, that some of this reason for this extraction was concern by the intelligence community that this person's safety was at risk, I certainly think and I suspect the intelligence committees, who, of course, in Congress operate with classified information and do a lot of their work, I think, appropriately in secret behind closed doors, you can bet they're looking into it. Hypothetically, if there was such an extraction, would that, in your view, rise to the level of the intelligence agencies having to give notification to the chairs and vice chairs of the intelligence committees of Congress when it happened? I would think so. As you know, because you worked on the Hill, the standard here is any significant intelligence activity. And a move like this, I think, would probably qualify. Do you think that notification would have included, if true, that one of the bases for the extraction was a concern that the president of the United States himself posed a threat of disclosure? If that was the case, I'm guessing that the intelligence community would have potentially finessed that uh, I think there might be other ways that the Intelligence Committee gets that information. I'd be skeptical that it would appear in the formal notification. Right. I'm just wondering also who would be responsible for getting this information out now, which you're concerned about. 
Is it possible that it's Congress? That's a really good point. Again, the sourcing that I have seen says individuals directly involved in the extraction. So it's anybody's guess. But that tells me that those are folks who have uh, very good information about this supposed extraction. What do you think about the related reporting, which says that Donald Trump really doesn't like the idea of spying on our adversaries? People have been quoted as saying the president believes we shouldn't be doing that to each other, that the president believes those people are selling out their country. And so he's not into human intelligence. On a scale of one to 10, how bonkers is that? It's beyond bonkers. And it's beyond bonkers because these are individuals who are putting their lives on the line to help the United States. Now, granted, they're going to have all sorts of motivation. Maybe they don't believe in the policies of their own country. Maybe they have financial motivation. Maybe they want safety and safe passage and a different life for their family. They can have all sorts of motivations. But the point is, they're now working for the United States in our national security interest. That's good for us. The intelligence community spends an incredible amount of resources and time developing these assets. So this report about this alleged Russian asset who was extracted, people should understand that person was likely decades in the making in terms of developing that source of information. That's incredibly important to the United States national security. The other thing, Preet, about this is this just seems to me in line with the president's hostility to the intelligence community. Right. Right. Or, you know, it's funny, I keep thinking about a totally different context. Mm -hmm. We both share time and experience as prosecutors, too. He also didn't like cooperating witnesses. Exactly. (laughs) No, it's 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 all of a piece. It's in the it's in the same vein. And you have to kind of ask yourself why. One, I think it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of what the role of in the case of the intelligence community, what the role of an asset is. It's in the United States interest and in the prosecution scenario, what the role of a cooperating witness is, is to help make cases to bring criminals to justice. So with regard to the intelligence community, this is all in a long line of hostility to the intelligence community, right? The president stood up next to Vladimir Putin, questioned on foreign soil, questioned his own intelligence community and favored Putin's analysis. He has called the intelligence community all manner of names. He says they're the deep state when these are career professionals working to protect the United States of America. So it is bonkers. It's beyond bonkers, but I guess it's not surprising. You can give me a number, one to 10. No, I'll use the same scale I've used previously. It's like the old phrase, it goes to 11. Yeah. (laughs) This is Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap, exactly. So another thing happened this week, National Security Advisor John Bolton depending on who you believe, fired, resigned. So not everyone loved him. Uh, A lot of people on the Democratic side didn't like him. Is this a good thing that he's gone? Is it a bad thing he's gone? Does Trump deserve credit for getting rid of this guy? So one, I think this was the least surprising news this week, quite frankly. I mean, the, the writing had been on the wall for a while. This is a national security advisor who was reportedly kept out of major meetings. Forget about being kept out of meetings. These are meetings that the National Security Advisor usually calls and runs. So the idea that he wasn't invited to a major national security policy meeting was affirmatively kept out of it is, again, on the bonker scale, beyond bonkers, right? Well past 10. So this was unsurprising. He's been contradicting the president and clearly is not in alignment with the president's Good or bad for the country? The whole thing is chaotic. So that's bad for the country, right? I don't subscribe to the view that Bolton might have been an adult in the room, might have been a moderating influence in the sense that he 
was not looking to double down with Kim Jong-un on talks. He didn't want the Taliban to come to Camp David. I think the whole thing reveals basically the chaos theory of foreign policy. So that's not good for the country. The one thing I do agree with, and this may surprise you, Preet, is some of the supporters of the president have said, look, the president deserves a national security advisor who he trusts and who's aligned with him. I agree with that. The president is entitled to an advisor, particularly one who serves in the White House and is supposed to be his closest foreign policy advisor. He's entitled to somebody who he trusts and is aligned with. But I think what this reflects is there is no national security policy process ongoing, right? That has been completely turned upside down and is non-existent. And Bolton seems to have forgotten the number one rule of serving in the White House, which is you're all staff. I served in the White House, as you said, the president's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor. It's a little bit like what happens in the Situation Room ought to stay in the Situation Room. Did Omarosa know that? <laughs> yeah, clearly clearly <laughs> I don't not. Think so. um, the fact that all of these disputes have been spilling out, certainly it's fun for folks to follow the back and forth and who's up and who's down and all the internal warfare, but it's not good for national security. But do you, do you not believe in the principle that a lot of people are articulating right now, which is John Bolton should go on television and go on the op-ed pages without divulging classified information, but should describe the dysfunction in the White House and how dangerous the president of the United States is? Should he keep his mouth shut or should he speak as some people think it would be a public service? Well, he's already spoken. And I don't, I don't think we need John Bolton to tell us that there's chaos in the White House, right? So I, I subscribe to the quaint notion that you ought to keep your advice to the president to yourself and you shouldn't use leaks as a foreign policy tool because it doesn't help our national security. What our adversaries and, frankly, our allies all see is complete upheaval and not a coherent foreign policy and not a coherent foreign policy process. That's not good for America. Apparently, the president of the United States planned during the week of the anniversary of 9-11, we're recording this on the 18th anniversary of 9-11, he planned to invite leaders of the Taliban to Camp David. The fact that we're even having this discussion, let alone on such a solemn anniversary as today's is, is frankly insane. The notion that you would have... Is insane higher than bonkers? <laughs> Below in, in, bonkers. Um, the notion that you would have leaders of the Taliban who literally have blood on their hands for the attack on this country, because of course they harbored al-Qaeda, they have not renounced al-Qaeda, they have not engaged in a ceasefire. It is insane that we would bring them to Camp David, a, a seat of the presidency, quite frankly, much like the White House, and frankly, give them that propaganda tool. Can you imagine what they would do with that? How so? How do you mean, how do you mean that? I mean, it emboldens them, it legitimizes them, it gives them, frankly, a photo op. As importantly, in this instance, I imagine would be devastating to the families of those who died on 9-11. So it is definitely beyond bonkers. It's in the insane category. And I should say, Preet, it's a laudable goal to try and bring this conflict 18 years on to a resolution. And to do that, you're going to have to deal with unsavory characters. I get that. But there's a real difference between doing that and bringing those people to Camp David and setting foot on U.S. soil. Lisa Monaco, thanks for dropping by. Sure. Don't be a stranger. We'll do this again. Great to be with you. Gets me off the hook a little bit. (laughs) Happy to do that. Okay. 
My guest this week is retired FDNY captain Brenda Brookman. She served New York City for a quarter of a century and was one of the many off-duty firefighters who ran into the rubble of the World Trade Center on September 11th. She returned to the site for months afterwards to assist in recovery efforts. In retirement, Captain Berkman volunteers still today, leading tours at the 9-11 Tribute Museum. We talk about her incredible journey to becoming a firefighter, why she ended up returning to the same courtroom for nearly five years, how she fought fires and dealt with daily discrimination from male colleagues, and also her reflections on the 18th anniversary of the deadliest terrorist attack on American soil. That's coming up. Stay tuned. It's finally fall. Time to do all those things you put off all summer long, like setting up your home security. I don't blame you. Finding the right system can be tough because most companies don't make it easy. But with Simply Safe, there's no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. Simply Safe protects every door, window, and room with 24-7 professional monitoring for just $15 a month. Plus, they've won a ton of awards, from CNET to the New York Times' wire cutter. One thing that truly sets Simply Safe apart is their video verification technology. When other home security systems are triggered, police might assume it's a false alarm, and the call goes to the bottom of the list. With Simply Safe's video verification, they visually confirm a break-in, allowing police to get to the scene 3.5 times faster. Feeling safe at home is a priority. That's why Simply Safe is my top choice, hands down. Visit simplysafe.com/preet and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go now and be sure to go to simplysafe.com/preet so they know that our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com/preet. Stay tuned to supported by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskovitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidate supply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ziprecruiter.com slash preet. That's ziprecruiter.com slash preet. ziprecruiter.com slash preet. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Captain Brenda Brookman, thank you for being on the show. You can call me Brenda Preet because I'm going to call you Preet. You call me Preet. Yeah. So we're taping this during the week of 9-11, the 18th anniversary. You were a first responder on that day, even though you were off duty. But your path to becoming a first responder, a firefighter, was not the normal path. No. <laughs> to no, say the least. No, it was least. a little <laughs> So I want to spend some time, because yeah. it's a real honor to meet you and to have you on the show and tell your story, because it's one about justice and also personal perseverance, I think. So you began after going to college and after getting, I think, a master's degree, right, in you decided to do a thing that I also did, which is go to law school. You went to the law school where I teach. I know. I'm NYU so law school, pleased so we... about that. <laughs> no, I am. I am genuinely pleased about that. I'm glad they snagged you. You didn't love law school. In fact, tell us, what did you think about law school? 
I really did not love law school. At that point, I was married to a lawyer. My father-in-law was a very accomplished lawyer. He had his own firm, so it was a small firm. But So I had role models in my own family at that point of people who loved law school. Maybe my husband, not so much. I went to law school with the idea that I was going to use the law to achieve social change. That's what I wanted to do with my life. And you did, ultimately. Well, I did, but not necessarily not as, a as a lawyer, although that entered in. But right. So I get to law school, and then I discover that, in fact, the law is a very conservative mindset. People don't understand that, and I certainly didn't because I didn't have any lawyers in my family growing up, you know, and I didn't know anything about the law, really, other than look all the great things that had been done with it uh, during the civil rights movement. I'm talking about the 60s and the, and the struggle for racial justice at that point. And, uh, you know, the judges and the attorneys who were so courageous and, and represented people. And my my late father-in-law actually had represented uh, black youth who had been accused of raping a white woman. You know, I mean, there was a lot going on to inspire me in the law. Then I get to law school and... And you were let down. Yeah, I was very much let down, and I wanted to work for a social justice organization. I wanted to do uh, represent workers for employment law and stuff. It was hard to get a job in that. I mean, I ended up doing some immigration law and representing applicants for asylum <laughs> on a pro bono basis. Yeah, uh, we could use your help now again. <laughs> well, the law has changed a lot, yeah. you know, and I've retired from the practice of law. but Because you decided at some I, point— I just, I, I struggled. I got to yeah. managed it, you know. And I've met people who went to law school and then later become doctors. People go to law school, mm-hmm. go into media, become Hollywood agents, all sorts of different things. <laughs> right. I, you're the first person I'm meeting who went to law school and decided to become a firefighter. Yeah. What was going Mystifying on? Mystifying to my mother. On? Did you know how hard it is to, to be a firefighter when you decided you wanted to go uh, down that path? How hard it was going to be for me personally? No, generally. We'll get to your personal struggle oh, in a moment. well... Yes, somewhat. I didn't come from a family of firefighters, and I didn't have any role models of firefighters growing up because, you know, women were not firefighters, and they didn't even allow women to take the test in New York until 1977. I was already in law school. I knew that, you know, firefighting is challenging. You have to know a lot of things about a lot of different things. That was part of its appeal for me, actually. You know, you have to know a little bit about a lot of stuff, and it's fun to figure out stuff, but more importantly, really, to help people, which was the way that I was raised. I knew it was going to be difficult, and I knew it was going to be difficult for me personally because I had worked, as a law student, I had worked on a case that involved women police officers where they were challenging the layoffs when did you move to New York, Preet? For law school, 1990. Oh, yeah. It was long gone by then. <laughs> so this was during the so-called fiscal crisis, right? And there were all these layoffs, and they were laying off women disproportionately because women had been hired later because they were being discriminated against. Nobody remembers the police department had a 3% quota on hiring women officers, and those women— got much higher scores on the exams than the guys had, 
And they would have had a higher place, you know, an earlier hiring, but for that discrimination. So my late father-in-law was representing these women. What happened to them? Well, the named class plaintiff got sent out in the middle of freaking nowhere in a dangerous (laughs) area. And she literally didn't know if she got in trouble if somebody would come. So their lives were threatened and their careers because they stood up. But I knew that challenging the status quo in these non-traditional jobs for women was not going to be a piece of cake. Did I understand really how incredibly difficult it was? No. Not fully. Here's here's another thing. In 1978, there were how many women firefighters in New York City? In 1978? Zero. Zero. Yeah. And you decided to be one. Yes. So 77 was the first time that they opened up the test to women. So like I say all the time, you know, it didn't matter what your physical capabilities were as a woman. You could have been Olympic caliber athlete. You could not even apply. Right. So you, you couldn't even try. So you couldn't even show up. You couldn't show up. And because they tests? changed the law. And for the first time, Title VII was applied to states and municipalities that affected the fire test. So yes, it had gone into effect earlier in the 70s, but the fire test had not been given for many years. There's a physical test back Mm -hmm. then still. And a written test. And a written test. So Mm -hmm. on the physical side first, describe for my audience what your physical condition was back then. My physical condition? Oh, so I was running marathons and I was uh, training and I was a cross-country skier and I was lifting weights and I was doing sprints and I was, you know, I was a jock and I had been really my whole life. Right. Hockey player? No, because Title IX hadn't, I grew up pre-Title IX, so I tried to join Little League, but the Little League coach sent my mother's $5 back, you know, and I was told, no, girls girls don't play Little League. You know, it was very limited organized sports opportunities, certainly very limited training or competitive stuff. But you were very fit. I was, I was way fit. Okay. And I, you know, I was carrying my ex-husband up and down the stairs in our apartment building, you know, trying to practice. To prepare for the test. To prepare for the test. And what was the test at that time? All kinds of goofy stuff. And, you know. <laughs> the test items were not really firefighting items. They were sort of abstract measures of fitness, such as a standing broad jump, uh, vaults over walls. That doesn't really work. What you really have to do is measure the fitness component in the manner in which the person performs it. You go back and you read the media accounts. From that time, it's really misleading because even the New York Times, well, even the New York, especially the New York Times, got things wrong about what was being asked, what was being required. But just to give a couple of examples. So they have to analyze, the city had to analyze what are the abilities needed in order to be trained to be a firefighter. So they come up with a list of of physical abilities that they think people need to be trained. One of them is stamina. How do you test for stamina? They tested for stamina by doing a mile run. Arguably, a mile run is not a test of stamina. It's a test of speed. Because you can do 26 of them. Yeah. Anaerobic, not aerobic. Yeah. Okay. So that's number one. But then they want to have a cutoff pass mark. So the experts say the cutoff pass mark should be, I think it was 10 minutes, something like that for a mile run. Not really fast, but, you know, reasonable fitness. Most firefighters can't run a mile faster than 10 minutes. But anyway, 
the experts come up with 10 minutes. They have a meeting. A fire chief says, you know, my daughter can run a mile in 10 minutes. I think we should have it seven and a half minutes. And that's how they came up with the pass mark for the mile run. Now, I was a runner. I had no problem running it. I think I ran it in five minutes. Must have been a short mile. Then, you know, you had to jump over an eight-foot wall. I mean, literally, you had to jump up, pull yourself over an eight-foot wall. And they had some kind of explanation for that, which at trial was shown to be totally bogus. That's not what people do. We don't throw people up on our shoulders and run up the stairs with them on our <laughs> shoulders. We right. don't do that. Right. But that's what they were testing. And so, so it was the, goofy. So, and how did you do on the test? Failed. As did every single woman. Only 90 of us showed up of the over 400 that were eligible to take the physical exam. So about 400 women had passed the written, but then there was all this press. Hardest test ever given for a firefighter. Women can't do it. They're going to do terribly. So women just didn't show up. How was the written test? How'd oh, the written test was, you know, relatively easy. Cake. Yeah, relatively easy. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people still failed it, but not very many people failed it. So the physical test became the sole determinant of whether you were going to get hired. Even with that, it was rank-ordered. So the previous tests had been pass-fail. So if you passed every part of it, you passed the test. With our test, it was how you did on every element of it. So you had to pass them all, and then the faster you ran the mile, the higher your score, et cetera. So even if women had passed the test, they probably would not have been hired off the list. Just so we're clear, are you saying that when the law required women to be able to sit for the physical test, take the physical test, they changed it to make it more difficult? Yeah. Okay. And at the trial, the civil servant, the personnel guy for the city who was in charge of administering the test said, it's the hardest test we've ever given for anything. Now, yeah. that kind of you raises that? your suspicions <laughs> right. just a little bit. But what people don't understand is that if the city had been able to prove that the test was job-related, namely tested for the actual abilities needed to be trained as a firefighter, that test would have stood. Right. Your complaint was not that it was too hard. No, Your complaint was, was they were testing for the wrong yeah, quality. So they were hiring the wrong guys. Right. You know, if you want to take this out to its logical conclusion, they would be hiring the wrong guys as well because they weren't really testing for the correct abilities in the right way. Then you get a bunch of – all the media was holding these public opinion polls. So like the Daily News would say they would ask, do you think standards should be lowered in order for women to be hired as firefighters? Nobody's going to say right. yes to that. <laughs> that. I wouldn't say yes to that's that. That's a leading question. Of, that, of well, certain it's kind, like, right. you know, what, it, what do you do you think standards should be changed to have a fair test that actually tests for the abilities to be determined? Yes. Everyone, I think, would agree to that. And that's what I was saying. But that's not the way that the media was portraying the test. And then, you know, the union was uh, very much against my lawsuit. And when I won the lawsuit before the district court in the Eastern District of New York, namely Brooklyn, the city did not appeal. The union took the appeal up to the Supreme Court. You know, the union is, is going around saying, uh, these women are too weak. They're going to be a danger to the public. They're going to be a danger to their fellow firefighters. They're going to be a danger to themselves. And, uh, you know, people bought that. They bought that, including some of the male firefighters. So, How old were you at the time? 
When I finally won my lawsuit in 1982, I was 31. So during the pendency of the lawsuit and the press is picking up on it, did you feel like a pioneer? Did you feel like you were doing this for yourself and maybe it would have consequences for other people? What was going through your head when you were going through all this struggle? So I'm a student of history. And I realized that people had done really hard things to give me the opportunities that I had as a white woman growing up in the 1950s, even though they were limited and continue to be limited for women, okay? But I realized that people had suffered a lot for other groups as well, and that this was not going to be something that just changed overnight. I thought if they could go through all of that, if they could lose their lives in, you know, listen, Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy, all those people, they were in my personal experience. And I thought, this is a little thing in the big scheme of things. I thought it was an important thing to not give up. It was something that I thought, and I really believe this, that the community and the fire service both are advantaged by having different people as their firefighters. So women were going to bring a different set of experiences to the job that would benefit everybody, people of color, people who grew up in the city, different generations, all these different perspectives and life experiences. They're going to help the fire department do a better job. And, you know, people thought this was... This was the thinking, oh, lawyer and feminist, ooh, F word. So, <laughs> so she's just a bra-burning feminist. She's going to win the lawsuit, maybe, probably not. If she does, she's never going to take the job. She's never going to be a firefighter. There was a lot of money riding on that. I wish I had taken those bets. So people thought you were just trying to make a point. Yes, make a political you point. You really wanted to be a firefighter. So because I w yes, because I was a sole name class plaintiff, I was on the stand, put on the stand by Judge Sifton, to testify that if I won my lawsuit, I would quit my law practice and become a firefighter. If I had said, no, I'm not going to do that, that would have been the end of the lawsuit because there would have been no named class plaintiff, no plaintiff. I told the truth. I mean, I you know, I wasn't lying under oath, right. unlike so many other people do on occasion. <laughs> you want to you name, have no experience name some of, of that? No, I'm sure you <laughs> yeah, have never well, encountered that in your career. There's a lot of there's a lot of pressure. The, the lawsuit, as you as you have alluded to, was Brenda Berkman versus City of New York. Yeah, there was a lot on your shoulders. Did you ever have down moments during that time? Ha! <laughs> My late father-in-law got fired from his uh, his client, the Uniform Fire Officers Union. We had done a stellar job for them for 30 years. He got fired because they thought he was uh, supporting me in this and, you know, encouraging me. And, and in fact, my father-in-law was not anxious for me to become a firefighter. My ex-husband did support me, but there were consequences. I mean, I got death threats. I had to get an unlisted phone number in the days when people just did not have unlisted phone numbers. Again, I'm sure you can identify with this. You know, people were leaving death threats on my answering machine. They were showing up at my apartment building. They were following me around on the street, threatening me, sending me threatening letters, pornography to my... F this is all before I came on the job. Right. <laughs> we're going to get to when you got on the job in yeah. a moment. Lives will be lost, uh, additional injuries to both the public and to the firefighters. They're jeopardizing human lives of the people of the city of New York. Were you surprised at how angry people got? And people might have a different point of view, and it was a long time ago, and they might think archaically that you shouldn't have a woman firefighter. But why, why so much anger 
and bitterness about it. Such a challenge to the image that people have, the last bastion of male supremacy. And I would say uh, combat, military combat, a similar kind of thing. And maybe to also, to some extent, the trades, the skilled trades. But there's a sense of entitlement in a lot of these families that this is a job that's reserved for my son, my cousin, male cousin, you know, my male neighbor, et cetera. You know, if women are competing against us, they're going to get all kinds of special advantages, you know, because that's what happens with the minorities, even though we're not a minority, you know, and then my son won't get hired as a firefighter. But I think on a deeper level, and this applies to even non-firefighting families, it's a threat to their, like, worldview. Women are still regarded as lesser. And if women can do this job, then somehow it undercuts the pedestal that we've put these men on, this is how I see it, is that it is, it is really hard, whether it's racism or misogyny or discrimination against people based on their religion, it's ignorance. It's ignorance and an idea that there are groups of people that are not as good as you. Therefore, because people have to establish a top dog hierarchy. Yeah. And then, so this, this is like the ultimate challenge. America's heroes, everybody, you say firemen, and people still say firemen. Civil service term changed before women even came on the job in the 1970s. So please say firefighter. They have this idea of six foot six, muscular man with a handlebar mustache, usually white, and that's your firefighter. Well, newsflash. Male firefighters have always been different sizes and different physical capabilities and different backgrounds in some respects, and they managed to get the job right. done. So why wouldn't women right. do it? So you achieve what a lot of people thought you couldn't have achieved. Mm. You win the lawsuit, yeah. and everyone lives happily ever after because no. the law fixed everything, right? Ah! <laughs> so this is another, you know... So 1982, you yeah. win. Before you go on to what you had to face yeah. after that, how'd you feel when you found out you won? Yay! Because I had great lawyers, you know, I was so lucky. I had Laura Sager in the Women's Rights Clinic at NYU, where you now teach. Let's just keep giving NYU kudos here. <laughs> They'll be very happy. Yeah, I know they will. And so Laura had taken this case, but very wisely decided that this is way beyond what me and my students can do in the law clinic. Because, you know, it was a multi-million dollar case, really, in terms of the resources that had to be thrown at that went on for close to five years. She brought in Double Voice and Plimpton. And big law firm in New York. Big law firm, White Shoe Law Firm. They have very senior litigators who were assigned to this case and very accomplished associates. You know, in those days, all the typists and all the people who were making the Xeroxes and all that. And they could hire the experts, you know, which costs a lot of money. Yeah. So all of that, you know, worked in my favor. And then when we won... Since I was the sole named class plaintiff and the other women hadn't exactly flocked to our cause, the question was, you know, is only Brenda Berkman going to be interested in having this job? Well, fortunately, more than 40 women decided to take and passed the revised physical, okay, the new job-related physical. So now we had a group of about 40 that went into the fire academy. That, you know, so normally in the fire department, when you get past the test, and you go into the fire academy. Yes, there's a little bit of, you know, torture that goes on and stuff. But basically, in New York City, people were not fired out of the fire academy. 
you know, they were trained and they were sent out into the field. So we were there and it was like open season on the women. I mean, the guys might as well have not been there. Nobody was really looking at them or paying any attention to them. There were certain instructors out there being encouraged by the union and others to get rid of the women in the fire academy. So we were really abused a lot in the fire academy. And in fact, there were a number of instances. One woman was very seriously injured out there. Other women could have been seriously injured and killed. We were given smoke inhalation like I've never had, not except for maybe 9-11, like I've never had. And this went on basically uninterfered um, with. You right. know, Because they wanted to, they were trying to get you to drop out. Right. You won the lawsuit, so, but we're not done with you yet. No. No, so we're going to get rid of you in the academy. And they did succeed in getting women, to, a few women to quit. What is astounding to me on some levels is that way more women didn't quit, and they just stuck with it. And many women had to repeat the course. I did not have to go through the fire academy for additional days. I graduated on time with, I don't know, it was a very small number of us, maybe 10 or 12 of us out of the 40-something actually graduated on time. And again, why we graduated and other people didn't graduate, it was nuts. Right. They kept changing the standards in the academy. So the department was complicit in this. It wasn't just these individuals and the union. The department was changing the standards for graduation practically every single day. Was there a way to fight back during that period? Or you just sort of tried to get through it? You know, um... I didn't know what was supposed to be the real deal out in the academy. I mean, how had it been done in the past? We did have some support from the Vulcan Society, which was a, the group of African-American firefighters and officers who have had and go through similar kinds of things. And they knew this was out of whack. But the thinking was, we just have to get through this, right? We just have to get through this. And then once we get in the firehouse... Well, we'll be on probation for a year, and there'll be some people who, who obviously won't like us to be there, but we'll get through that, right? Oh. So then you go <laughs> so then you go to the firehouse. Which, which firehouse? <laughs> which? <laughs> I'm going to ask you to put Thanks that Thanks for into, asking me to do I'm going to ask you to put that into words. <laughs> so which firehouse did you go to? So I went to a fire company that no longer exists, although the firehouse is still there. Uh, Mayor Dinkins closed Engine 17 on the Lower East Side underneath the... Williamsburg Bridge there. It was not a great place to send me to. There were poor leadership there and um, issues with other things that went on that didn't make it a welcoming place. Okay, so I get there and, you know, the media wants to follow me all around. That's really helpful when you're trying to learn the job and you already feel like, uh, you know, in a fishbowl. And the guys didn't like that either. So a little time passes, and some of the men start testing the, the waters, you know. So they start doing little things, and then they start doing bigger things, and then— Were you the only woman at that firehouse? Yeah, so I, I was the only woman in that battalion. So they sent all the women to firehouses— Separate places. Separate places, all medium to very busy houses. Nobody, right. No woman went to a slow house. Right, but every woman went, was alone wherever she yes. was assigned. So it was only if you went to something, a big fire, like a second alarm, that you might see another woman. But then there were the women firefighters who didn't want to see the other women, you know, because they were told, you're okay, 
But that woman down, you know, over there, she's no good. And you're our girl, you know, you're okay, whatever. It's called the, you know, the mentality of the token. There's all kinds of uh, studies of this. You never, ever encountered that, I'm sure. You know, so some of the women were not supportive of some of the other women. Right. Me being like the chief troublemaker. So while I was <laughs> in the academy, I formed an organization, the United Women Firefighters, because I knew when we get out in the field, they're going to try and pick us off one by one. We got to organize and we got to support one another. So we need an organization for that. So I formed that and then they elected me the president because really who would want to be the president of that? You know, I was trying to talk to the department about all this stuff. So then the men in my, in my firehouse put me out of the meal. So that meant that I had to eat by myself, make all my food by myself. Now, and what were you eating? Uh, peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. I wouldn't eat peanut butter. I had peanut butter and jelly for a sandwich this morning. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> but you eat said for peanut a long butter. time. You didn't. No, I would not eat peanut butter and jelly for a very long time. Because you associate that. it with that time. Yeah. And, you know, this is like really getting in the weeds, but because we were two units in that house, one unit would go out and buy the food for the other unit, and we'd all eat together, but not me. I'd say, would you pick me up an apple? Right. And the apple would come and it would be like the worst freaking apple you've ever seen in your life. I mean, inedible, inedible. So I just stopped doing that. You know, I just stopped asking them to get me anything. So I could go up for 24 hours, you know, up to 24 hours really with nothing to eat. So then you go through your probationary period and you make it through Ah. the torture and abuse. And now everything is fine, right? No, no. It's still not fine. I mean, I don't want to I don't want I don't want your listeners to think that. That period was the only thing that was going on with me was, you know, being put out of the meal. I mean, there's a great story about that. I was in another firehouse, and basically the captain had ordered them not to put me out of the meal. I was only there for a month. And so he wasn't working, and they had a covering officer who happened to be African-American. And, you know, covering officers, you can basically... (laughs) You can get around things, right, sometimes, if you want to. And uh, so they went to him and they said, we don't have enough food, Brenda can't eat. And he said, what? <laughs> you know? I mean, you said it like that, but they had told me, and I was out on the apparatus floor by myself crying because this had not happened to me there, and I was just like, wow, this is going to be my career, right? And he went in and he said, well, she can have half of my food. We always have too much food anyway. And suddenly there was enough food for me, you know, but it, it took people like that. And there were guys like that who would stand up for the women and other women who would stand up for the other women. So there were people who supported us and women from outside the fire department and men from outside the fire department who supported us. But, you know, I had my air tank drained. I had crap left in my boots. I had my equipment tampered with. This is a dangerous job. So the idea that you can't count on your coworkers to support you in a dangerous situation, uh, that, that's, that's not encouraging. <laughs> well, did you ever worry when you went out on calls that you weren't perfectly safe, separate from the hazing that was happening in the firehouse? I told my ex-husband if something happens where I lose my life or I get seriously injured, I want you to investigate the shit out of this. Sorry, I don't bring because, you know, yes, I had real fears. You know, one of the death threats, the guy who left a message on my answering machine was calling from the firehouse. You could hear the dispatcher in the background and the firehouse noises. And other women, you know, they're 
one woman was uh, threatened to be pushed off a roof by one of her co-workers in the company. And this stuff was very real. And women stuck with it. Once they got on the job, not only did they stick with it through the academy, through all that stuff, but they did not resign. I, I think there was only one woman who completed her probationary period who subsequently resigned. And then another woman moved and she resigned. But almost all the women stayed. They all stayed. You know, this was a good job. And a lot of these women, this was going to be the best job they would ever get in terms of money and benefits and, and the opportunity for community service and just so many different ways that it's appealing. So then you became a firefighter after that year. Well, they fired me. And so you have to go back to court again. Yes. To the same judge. Yes. So first they torture us, then they fire us. They sent myself and one other woman, who Joe, we just happened to be the two most publicly prominent women of the whole group. She had a New York cover story about her, New York Magazine cover story about her, where she praised the men she worked with to the high heavens, and then they put her out of the meal. But <laughs> An unfortunate coincidence is what Spinato called it. The two women who didn't make it, the two most visible, the one who made the cover of New York Magazine and the one who filed the suit. Brenda Berkman, who didn't make it, is the one who made it possible for the 22 who did. So Zeta and I... There were other women who were under threat, but we were, we were ordered back to the fire academy to be re-evaluated right before the end of our probationary period. We had started out getting really good evaluations. You know, everything was fine. And then the fire commissioner had a meeting with all the captains where the women were assigned and said, if you can find a reason to fire these women, I'll back you up. So suddenly, a lot of our evaluations started going down the tubes. And then Zeta and I got hauled back out to the academy. When I tell you, well, one guy who was back out there for retraining who was with us, he then retired rather than go through what we were going through because he said, I'm going to get hurt here, so I'm just going to retire. At the end of that retesting, we're, we come into work one morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. I pass a guy sitting at the front desk, and he says to me, you're going to be fired today. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, it's in the Daily News. That's how you found out. That's how I found out I was going to be fired. And then Zeta and I, meanwhile, you know, Zeta was like, she didn't have the legal background that I had. I looked at what was happening to us, and I thought, this is the perfect retaliation case. <laughs> I don't think I was See, ever so confident. So NYU Law School was way very more. helpful. Yes, way you. more yeah. than the original case itself. The yeah. retaliation case seemed to me to be a lock, right? Maybe my lawyers didn't quite feel it that way. But, you know, so we, uh, we got hauled in. We got fired. I had to go clean out my locker down at my firehouse. One of my friends from the, you know, women friends went with me. They clapped when I left, you know, um, just fantastic, you know, wonderful. And then we had to have a separate trial, and the city kept trying to delay it and delay it. Gee, well, chief attorney had to go to China. Okay, judge said, I think you have a few other attorneys. we got to go forward with this. And sure enough, a couple months later, Zane and I got our job back. And then we had to go back to the fire academy again and be reevaluated again. But this time, there were actually a couple of battalion chiefs who were looking at what we were doing, you know, what was happening to us, so things were more on the level. And uh, then we got our firehouses changed. 
And that was not the end. So from the time you decided to become a firefighter to this moment, yeah. after two lawsuits, how many years had passed? So let's see. I won the lawsuit in uh, the spring of uh, 82, and I came on the job in the fall of 82, coming up on the anniversary right now of that. Got fired in 83 and came back in January of 1984. So a lot of years. Yeah, it was a lot of years from 77. But then you served continuously in the FDNY right. for a quarter century. Yeah. And so how, did, how was that? You know, well, the beginning was not uh, fun. Did, uh, did you feel when, once you got in the second time, did you have a different kind of feeling of satisfaction than you had the first time? Mm, initially, maybe a little bit. And not just for me. The discrimination against the first group of women firefighters did not stop when Zeta and I got our jobs back. And uh, it continues to this day. It affects women's promotional opportunities or um, their assignment opportunities. That stuff still goes on, not, not to the degree that it did. And things have gotten a lot better. But it took, we were before the judge, huh, I'm sure Judge Sifton did not expect this uh, case to go on before him for like 10 years. And, you know, they tried with various women. They tried to reassign them to desk jobs and things that were just pure and simple discrimination, you know, apart from Zeta and myself. So we were, you know, by we, I say my lawyers and the uh, Women Firefighter Organization, we were in court a lot for 10 years. And it didn't affect every woman, but... My feeling was that if they succeed, if the fire department succeeds in making women quit and picking off the women one by one, then eventually we'll get down to almost no women or no women. And sure enough, they did some other things that resulted in the number of 40 dropping down, down, down. And then the women from the original group were retired by the time that 9-11 happened. So... We only had about 25 women as active firefighters at the time of 9-11 out of a fire force of about 10,500, 11,000. But when Zeta and I went back to the firehouses, Zeta ended up um, resigning because uh, she um, just could not catch a break, and it got to be too much for her. And I, you know, had issues. I, I just... I decided that uh, I was going to study for promotion, and I was going to stick with this. I was going to try my best to make a contribution to the fire service. Now, my own department didn't want to hear anything from me, even though I had all these advanced degrees and, you know, think of myself as like kind of an analytical person in some respects and like to study things. They were like, no. And so I, I looked outside my own department. So this is like an example of sometimes the things that you think are the worst thing that can happen to you in your life may end up being a really good thing for you. So I went outside my own department. I joined and became the president and legal advisor for the National Organization of uh, Women Firefighters. I got put on National Fire Protection Association committees uh, at a time where FDNY really didn't participate in a lot of that. Certainly, firefighters didn't participate in that. Might be some very high-ranking chief. I went all over the world. People invited me to come and speak, and I met people from all over the world. And I realized that it didn't have to be this way. 
you know, that other departments, other organizations were doing things differently and better. And that, you know, we could learn from these other departments. We could make things better, not only for the women here, but it's always been my belief that when you made things better for the women and the people of color in the fire department, the white male firefighters benefit from that in ways they, that, you know, they may not initially see. Like how? Well, you are the scene and everybody's got tunnel vision and they're thinking exactly the same way. And so that can get you hurt. You know, if you, um, if you have some people who have different life experiences that they bring to this and they're actually heard, their opinions are actually respected, they're encouraged to, to participate in the organization in an equal way, which didn't happen a lot of the time, that is to the benefit of everybody. Corporations recognize this. They know that you need different voices in the room. And the fire service has been very slow to come to this realization. Some departments much faster than others. New York, like a dinosaur. But, you know, people recognize and they admire firefighters for the fact that we do what we can to help people in their worst hours. You know, we see everything we take people out of bathtubs that are stuck in their bathtub, you know. <laughs> we see terrible things. Yeah. We see people that have died, you know. Speaking of worst hours, we've referred a few times to 9-11... Tell us about September 11, 2001, your morning. So I got up. I thought I was going to be working in a political campaign and go vote. It was my day off, and I was having my second cup of coffee at my apartment out in Brooklyn. What a beautiful day, you know, unbelievable. And I was looking forward to the day. I had changed my campaign assignment from Lower Manhattan like two blocks away from the Trade Center. This is how the day went for people, just luck, okay, to Brooklyn. When at 9 o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from Kentucky, and my friend says, turn on your television. That's when I see the North Tower burning. The South Tower hadn't been hit yet. And I look at that, and everybody's saying, oh, must have been a small plane or a helicopter. And I'm looking, and I'm thinking... Terrorism. It was a huge gash, multiple floors. Giant fire. I had been to helicopter crashes, plane bopping, th- you know, little things. And I looked at that and I thought, that's a commercial plane. And, you know, a commercial pilot would have been in the Hudson River before they would have flown over there. We don't keep our gear at home. I start, I think I'll run to the headquarters in Brooklyn. Then while I'm outside, of my apartment, I hear second planes gone into the South Tower. So I think, firehouse. So I run to the firehouse that I had been promoted out of over in Brooklyn, Engine 219, Ladder 105. And I get there, second tower's burning, burning. And there's about half a dozen of us that come in from home. They hadn't recalled us yet. No fire trucks, no equipment. No members for New York City Fire Department. Couldn't have happened at a worse time. Change of tours. Night tour was there. Day tour was there. Many times 
double the number of firefighters got on the trucks. They took all the equipment with them. So we're trying to figure out, cops had shut down all the bridges and tunnels. You know, I don't know if people remember this, but he couldn't, it was hard to get he over He couldn't here. get anywhere. He couldn't get anywhere. So the, you know, the public transport dispatchers had sent all the train traffic elsewhere, you know, the subways and everything. So you couldn't get there with that. My firehouse was north of the Trade Center, and I thought, ooh, how am I going to get to my firehouse? So that's why I went to the Brooklyn Firehouse. And then we go next door to the cops. You'll laugh about this. We go next door to the cops. We say, could you please give us a police officer in a van to drive us over to Manhattan so we can help out? And to our surprise, they say, okay, because normally they didn't talk to us. Actually, they had arrested one of our members. Uh, stupid stuff. So... They say, okay, so we go back to the firehouse, and, we, and we're watching the television like one-third of the entire world was watching the Trade Center in real time. And while we're watching, the South Tower falls in 56 minutes. And about that time, here comes the police officer with the van. Now, we get in. All we basically have is the stuff on our backs, so our coats, our pants, maybe a spare axe. No breathing apparatus, no radios to communicate with, no tools to speak of. Just as we're getting across the Brooklyn Bridge, we're the only vehicle on the bridge when we start across on the inbound side. Mobs of people covered in dust going out to Brooklyn on the outbound side. Right. Coming back the other way. Yeah. And so they're, we're looking at them. We're in our little van. We get to the Manhattan side. We hear a big noise. North Tower fell down. We're in this gigantic dust storm. And uh, police officer turns on his windshield wipers, can't see. Stop the van. We're going to run over somebody. We hop out. <laughs> We're coughing. There's a fire chief standing there right on Broadway. He's got a little line of officers. I walk over to him. Chief, give me an assignment. He knew me. He says, Brenda, you got any firefighters with you? The people I'd come over with, they had scattered already. They're standing on Broadway, a group of my own off-duty firefighters from my own firehouse in Chelsea. They have no equipment either. No radios, no breathing apparatus, no hose lines, no nothing. We get an assignment. We walk towards the Trade Center. Worse than anything you could imagine. I tell people, you can't, you've seen the movies, you've read the books. Nope, that's not it. It's so much, it was so much worse I thought, I know the people with me thought, we're definitely going to die today, you know. Um, but what are you going to do? We thought, thousands of people are trapped in there. We have to do whatever we can. We've got no water. The water mains are all broken when the towers fall down. We have no communications. We have no tools, but we're going to do whatever we can do. So we start looking for the people that might be on the top and the sides that we can find. And we do this. We do we walk over towards, somebody says, your fire truck is parked over. We were, you know, we're at Church Street. Fire truck's parked over on West Street on the other side. And I think, okay, let's go over there because we'll find the on-duty people. They have all the equipment. We can get the truck going. We can put water on the fire. You know, I'm thinking all this. We can be useful. We get over there. We can't get the truck started. It's all full of dust. You know, won't start. Nobody around, no equipment completely stripped off. So we continue looking for people, right? When did you understand how many firefighters had gone up into the buildings before we, they collapsed? I, I knew there had to have been thousands of firefighters down there because I knew they had sent all the firefighters from 125th Street south. All of them? 
All those companies. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Maybe not some of the battalion. Anyway, most everybody. And all the companies in Brooklyn that ringed Manhattan, lower Manhattan, and all our special units. And then people like myself who just came in from home and got there, you know. So everybody knew there were thousands of firefighters, cops, and thousands of civilians. You know, I only learned this after I started doing volunteering as a tour guide for the 9-11 memorial that 50,000 people worked in that building every day, those buildings, seven buildings, and every single one of them was destroyed on 9-11. So we're working and we're working and we're, it's getting dark and crazy and other people joined with me because they'd lost track of who they were supposed to be with and all that. And people were out of their minds. And at 5.20 in the afternoon, we hear big noise, and we were in the collapse zone for number seven World Trade Center. So we start running down the street. We're in the dust cloud, another dust cloud. Everybody forgets about seven because— People forget about that. There's only 47 stories. Only the people who have conspiracy theories, you know, don't forget about seven. But, you know, seven fell down. We could have been killed then. And we ran into a building. We got out of it. Waited for it to stop, came back out again, and continued working. And about midnight, I thought, well, we haven't had anything to eat or drink really here. Everybody's getting, uh, they're not right. We got to go back to the firehouse. So that's when we go back, and that's when we discover that, you know, initially thousands of people were listed as missing. I was listed as missing initially. The man whose gear I had borrowed in Brooklyn to put on, Vinnie Brutton, he was... um, believed to be alive because people saw him walking around, you know, but it wasn't him. It was me wearing his gear. He was killed. I mean, it was just, so ultimately we learned that, you know, the on-duty lieutenant that day from my company, Lieutenant Phil Petty from Ladder 12, and two of my firefighters were killed evacuating people from the Marriott Hotel, guests from the Marriott Hotel, and other of my firefighters who were standing only 10 feet away from them survived. We lost our two highest-ranking people to be killed that day, Bill Feehan and Pete Gancy, on West Street. And the engine in my firehouse, who were standing next to them, they ran a different direction, and they all survived. You know, it was just a fluke. Yeah. So you, you work night and day, yeah. busy doing stuff, trying to look for, for people, trying to help them. At what moment did you begin to take in the magnitude of the loss, not just to your colleagues in the fire department, but the country and the city? Immediately. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible, dangerous, toxic, terrible. I mean, people talk about uh, the uh, people who were there remember the smell. I I remember the smell for months. Because the U.S. Attorney's Office was was right across the way, you know, very close. You come out of the Brooklyn Bridge subway stop. I would come from 22nd Street back then. And on 22nd Street, the air was sort of fine, although you could smell a little bit. But you come out at the Brooklyn Bridge, we would say, it's yeah, it smelled like death Mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah. And um, the fires burned there for, you know, I don't know, about six months. Because we had to keep going down, down, down in layers. And what's amazing to me is that nobody was killed after 9-11. I mean, it was such an incredibly dangerous site, particularly at the beginning. Things could fall on you. If you fell into the pile, not only might you, you know, burn up, but you could get cut to shreds because basically everything that was there was like 
a field of razor blades. So, you know, people got injured. I got injured the second day I was down there, the 12th. I cut my arm open. Nobody went sick. Some guys that had driven up overnight from Maryland. You know, people showed up. This is what I really want to emphasize about this story. So it was terrible. And in the, the fire department, I'm sorry, it was totally unprepared for this. It was not, it did not have the large incident capabilities that we needed for that job. And we had to call on the U.S. Fire Service and the National Fire Academy and bring in people to give us a hand. And then all these people showed up. So volunteers, we had half a million people from all over the world come to, vol- to help us here in New York. And that was amazing. Now, we didn't want them in the pile because they were a danger to themselves and they were a danger to us. But they did all kinds of things for us, these people. And we were incredibly grateful, even though we may not have acted like it at the time. So that was, that was important. That was really important. People wanted to, um, they wanted to say thank you and they wanted to help. Yeah. Most of all, they want to help. Yeah. I, me- I remember the lines of people standing to donate blood, to donate blood yeah. and, and no blood was really ever needed. Nope. It's one of, the, one of the saddest moments and, and images from that time. We tried really, really hard to find somebody alive after 9-11, and we did not succeed. Even though people were taking enormous risks to go in there and look, right? The survivor guilt, uh, a lot of my friends who survived 9-11, they, they still talk about the survivor guilt. Do you feel it? Absolutely. But 343 firefighters? 343 firefighters, 23 New York City police officers, 37 Port Authority, all kinds of other uniformed people, you know, quarter officers. They all rushed there and tried to help. And, and then all these volunteers as well, you know, who, who went. Uh, the Firefighters Memorial is actually dedicated to Glenn Winnick, who was a volunteer firefighter, went there and lost his life. And then all the people who were injured, you know, and exposed to all this toxicity. So... The survivor guilt is enormous, but you have to, I don't know, a lot of people also talk about how out of respect to the people who are lost, we can't just, those of us who did survive, we can't just sit around and mope about it, all right? We've been given the gift of life, and we need to... (laughs) And we need to try and make the world better. Uh, there was a lot of anger that came out of the out of nine eleven, especially in the fire department. And I saw my my subordinates and some of my peers, officer peers. You know, they just wanted to kill everybody that was Muslim. They wanted to, you know, bomb the Afghanistan back to the Dark Ages, whatever. You know, and. But there was also a group of people who said, you know, it's hate that got us to this point. We need to respond with love because more hate is not going to help. And so they started to do things to try and help with uh, Habitat for Humanity or, you know, after the hurricanes uh, down the Gulf or in Japan after their tremendous disaster or after other terrorist attacks like when the Boston Marathon bombing or, you know, all the bombings in the U.K. and Europe. You know, a lot of people did respond 
in a positive way. They set up schools to educate Afghan girls. You know, they they there was just a lot of that that happened too. And so that's what a lot of us have as a takeaway that we are going to use what time we have left to really honor those who were lost by doing this work. Can you believe it's been 18 years? Well, certain times of the year, it seems like right now, <laughs> seems like it just happened, right? And then other times, it seems like a million years ago. You know, when uh, when all the testimony and stuff was going on down in Congress about the uh, 9-11 survivors getting medical care and and uh, monitoring you know that that raised a lot of uh, feelings as well so sometimes you know 911 is still very much with us and and it concerns me you know it concerns me that how will we respond if there's another attack you know will will firefighters run into buildings the same way, will I, I believe that they will, although I hope that we have learned some lessons from 9-11. You know, how will people who are affected by the attacks respond? Will they respond uh, with vengeance and hatred, or will they respond in ways that, you know, good ways? You know, when I think about 18 years having gone by, it's astonishing to me that there are so many people who were infants or were born after 9-11, some of whom can now vote. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My daughter was four months old on 9-11, and, and she's now a voter. And people who were just born or born after 9-11 are becoming firefighters themselves. And they don't have the experience of having lived through it. And all of us, you know, we talk about it all the time. What would and you there's want... no curriculum to teach it. Yeah. In New York City, there is no curriculum to teach 9-11. Well, there's the memorial in the museum. Yeah, but and you, you have to it. have a school group go there, and that is that can be a problem, you know, <laughs> especially if you live in the far reaches of Queens or something. Why, why do you volunteer there and, and give tours? A lot of it has to do with um, honoring the people who were lost and keeping their story front uh, in people's consciousness because there are so many people, and we, you know, we don't get very many people from New York. And we don't get very many school groups. Why do you think we don't get so many people from New York? There's a lot of people from New York who've never been back down but to what, lower Manhattan. Well, yeah, because it's it's too raw. It's too raw. But people, I am telling you that if you, I think it helps people to come on one of our tours and re-engage by hearing a story and basically thinking back in a, in a way that isn't about it, it's going to happen like, right now again, you know, and, and thinking about all the good things and looking at lower Manhattan. And if that doesn't show the resiliency of the human spirit, not just the buildings, you know, and the beautiful memorial, which is the most meaningful thing to me, but also the fact that, uh, you know, life has returned, the schools, the residences, the businesses that were, you know, basically completely destroyed by the attack. All that stuff is back. And um, and the people are back. You know, they're doing these positive things. So I want people, when they go on my tour, I want them to honor the people. I want them to learn more about 9-11 because there's an increasing number of people that don't know anything about 9-11. I want them to be inspired by 
the people who have rebuilt their lives and are, you know, trying to do good things in the world. What's your advice to people who are trying to seek true justice like you did when you tried to become the first woman firefighter in the FDNY of how to persevere and get through it? Um, It takes a village. (laughs) Two things I say frequently. And one is that, you know, I don't think people achieve social change, no matter if it's Martin Luther King or anyone, you know, Gloria Steinem, anybody that we regard as, you know, like the paragons of uh, civil rights movements. Nobody achieves social change by themselves. You know, you need support networks. You need lots of people doing lots of different things. We're about to celebrate the 100th anniversary of suffrage. Women's suffrage did not occur because Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others like Sojourner Truth stood up and said, all right, give women the vote. It's gonna, People's minds had to be changed. And it took thousands, millions of women and men all around the country to achieve that from taking a movement that was regarded as utterly ridiculous at a time where women were not even allowed to speak in public and transforming that into a situation where we can have women as candidates as president. That didn't occur fast, took 72 to 100 years, depending on how you're counting, okay, a long time, decades before women even got the vote. And even then, there was still a lot that needed to be done in terms of true access to the vote. That's the second part. One is it takes a lot of people, but the second thing is, and we need to work together, and the second thing is that it can take a while. So you can't expect that everything's going to change overnight and, and be fine. You, you know, you may move forward a little bit, then you move back again. But the point is, we've got to keep moving forward. And if we can't talk to one another, if we can't work together despite some differences that sometimes seem insurmountable, but in the big scheme of things are really not insurmountable, then we're in trouble as a country. We're in trouble as a country. It doesn't have to be this way. You know, it doesn't have to be all this public vitriol, and it doesn't have to be all the hate that's spewing out of the executive branch, and it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, it's been that way before. Joe McCarthy, you know, civil rights movement where people were being killed and losing their jobs and, you know, all kinds of terrible things were happening to them. And they persevered, and we owe it to them to persevere in the struggles that we have right now. And uh, the justice system is such an important part of that. We cannot be undermining the rule of law, which is what is happening right now. It's so scary to me, both as a lawyer and a litigant and, uh, you know, someone whose life was changed by justice in a good way. Not always the best way because no judge is going to be in the firehouse with you 24 hours a day. But, you know, as imperfect as justice is, it was better than no justice. And we have to fight for that as a country, every one of us. Captain Brenda Berkman, thank you for your service. Thank you for being on the show. Great. Thank you, man. I admire your career enormously. So happy you're at my law school now. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. 
The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In this week's Stay Tuned bonus, Brenda Berkman tells me about the challenges of firefighting in New York City and what life was like in the days after 9-11. And a little about her work with Monumental Women, an organization dedicated to placing the first statue honoring women's history in Central Park. To hear the bonus and the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, go to cafe.com slash insider. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Something devastating has happened, and again, unconfirmed reports that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. So I'm recording today on the 18th anniversary of 9-11, and every anniversary is very difficult. And you can become overwhelmed by the tragedy of that day and the terrible things that happened to so many people and to the country. For me, some anniversaries seem especially poignant. If you were a baby born on or around September 11th, like my daughter was, you become an adult on this anniversary. And as I discussed with Brenda Berkman, lots and lots of people suffered on that day, but perhaps no group more than the New York City Fire Department. They're known here as New York's bravest. And boy, did they prove it that day. 343 people in the fire department lost on 9-11. And that's maybe what makes it especially moving for so many people to see the children of people who died as firefighters on 9-11 themselves being sworn in to fight fires in the city that lost so much 18 years ago. It's not just the children who become firefighters or first responders of another variety who are inspiring a former colleague of mine, Jonathan Lichen, worked with me in the Southern District of New York. We overlapped early in the 2000s. Shortly before Jonathan began as an AUSA in 2001, his daughter was born. Here's what his daughter, Callie Lichen, recently wrote on a blog. I was born on September 11, 2001 in New York City. That morning, my mom, then a public defender at the Legal Aid Society, and eight and a half months pregnant with me, walked the five miles away from the burning Twin Towers in Lower Manhattan, to my parents' apartment on the Upper West Side. She went into labor that afternoon. After a cab ride across Central Park with a police escort and lights and sirens so my mom and labor could cross the barricades, I was born at 5.15 p.m. by emergency C-section at Mount Sinai Hospital. Kelly goes on to say, All my life, people have reacted to the story of my birth with wonder, especially when they hear about my mom's journey from ground zero to the delivery room. I've known since I was little that although something terrible happened on the day I was born, my birth gave hope to my parents and the people around them. But until I visited the 9-11 memorial for the first time this summer, I didn't fully comprehend that a hole, both real and spiritual, was blown into the earth on the day I was born. Visiting the 9-11 memorial and museum for the first time, I thought of my birthday as a tether across time, connecting me to those who were lost that day. Walking through the museum, I felt a strong need to understand the stories of the people who were lost and how to share and honor those stories. And so what did Kelly Lichen, who turns 18 today, decide to do? She has chosen to serve as an official ambassador for the 9-11 Memorial. To bring the anniversary and stories about that date to her high school, Shaker Heights High School in Ohio. Kelly writes, As I enter my senior year, I will help to tell the story to my classmates, all of whom were born around September 2001. 
As we look ahead to graduation next spring, we must all take responsibility for understanding 9-11, learning from it, honoring the victims and the brave first responders, and making the world a better place in their memory. Happy birthday, Callie. I've always believed that 9-11 taught us some basic things. There is evil in the world, but there is also good. There is cowardice in the world, but also courage. There is terrible tragedy, but also hope. And I'll tell you, sitting here 18 years on, I still believe those things to be true. And I think that these children of 9-11, if I can call them that, help to prove how much good there is in the world and how the future can be brighter than the past. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Captain Brenda Berkman. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. You can tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pirini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, David Kurlander, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe makes home security easy with no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. For just $15 a month, you get 24-7 professional monitoring throughout your home. And Simply Safe uses their revolutionary video verification technology to visually confirm that break-ins are happening, allowing police to get to you 3.5 times faster. Visit simplysafe.com slash preet and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's simplysafe.com slash preet. Simplysafe.com slash preet.